This morning's scripture reading will be out of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. If you are visiting with us, you will find a Bible in the pew in front of you, a black uh, Bible in, in the pew rack. You will find uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, on page 969, in the last part of the book. Uh, chapter 15 is the big, bold, number 15 number, and we'll begin right beside it with our reading this morning. A passage that details the testimony of Jesus' resurrection following coming back from the dead, of which we celebrate this Sunday and every Sunday. Please follow along as I read, beginning in chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to these words that you have instructed the Apostle Paul to write down for our instruction, we pray that you would truly open our eyes, that it would be your grace at work within us during this hour. And we pray that your grace would also be at work in Pastor Toby as he teaches us from your word that it would not be his words, not his teaching, but you're teaching us through your word. Move in us, Lord, um, to greater faith, to walk in repentance, that we might be made new. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How can they be so sure? How can you be so sure? I've been asked that question more than once when talking to someone about religion, about Christianity, about the Lord Jesus. How can you be so sure? Isn't it just as good to, and then fill in the blank. Hang on to that question. Because there is a very distinct difference. Plenty of people have died in the names of other religions, but no one has died and been raised from the dead, save one, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the distinguishing characteristic of Christianity. If you only look at ethical codes, you will see similarities from one to another. 
But the very fundament, the foundation, the fundamental truth, the way in which one is made right with God is so different, it is like night compared to day. It is like the Colts compared to the Titans. Or worse yet, the Patriots. The resurrection of Jesus is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. It's interesting that in the, in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, Paul is preaching in a city called Athens. And he's preaching and nobody's reacting to anything until he gets to the resurrection. Now, they don't respond to anything because they were used to all kinds of philosophies and philosophers standing up and spouting off truths and just listening. But here is a man who is standing up and preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And at this, some people go straight to mocking him. And at this, other people believe him and follow after Paul and want and still others say, well, we'll hear you again on this. We want to hear more. And actually, that's the purpose of that yellow card inside the case for Easter. On it, you'll find a place for your name. We're running a six-week course called The Case for Christ starting this Wednesday. And what I'm going to ask everyone to do, whether you are part of Gray Road or you ever plan on coming to that course or not, is to get that card between now and the end of the service, put your name on it, and just mark whether you'll be at that course. All right, can you do that? I mean, that's very simple. I'm not asking you to do anything very difficult. But there are kiosks outside all these doors, and I'd like every single one of you, if you don't mind, to put your card in that kiosk with your name and your response. But for some of you, this may be the first time that you're hearing the main message of Christianity. For others, you've heard it many times. But if you're willing to hear more, that's what that course is for is to hear more, to think more, to have dialogue. One of our elders will be leading it, and you'll be able to interact with him about these things. But today we come to a chapter that focuses exclusively on Jesus' resurrection. It's in a letter written to the gathering of Christians, the local body, the church at Corinth. I won't take time to go into detail about the church, but... It is sufficient to say that this church is seriously messed up. For those people who, you know, idealize the early church and say, I really wish I could be part of a New Testament church, they are not thinking of this church. This church is far from ideal, as is every church since then. But here Paul comes, and we didn't read the whole chapter, but I'm going to, we're going to look at the whole chapter. So if you keep the Bible that you pulled out in front of you, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, if, um, and I will refer to where we're at as we go along. However, what, this, what Paul does in this chapter in speaking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ inspires confidence. Not in ourselves, not self-confidence. The resurrection of Jesus inspires confidence in the truth that believing in Jesus, living for Jesus, following Jesus is not a waste of time. It is not vanity. It is not like chasing the wind. 
That's why Paul comes to the end in the very last verse in this chapter says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He could not say that apart from the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today. And if you are a believer in Jesus, this chapter should strengthen us, knowing that while those around us may mock us and reject us and uh, may make us outcasts for believing in and following Jesus, while Christians around the world are imprisoned and persecuted and sometimes even killed, that in reality Christians are on the right side of history because we are on the side of a risen Savior who rules history. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I hope that you will seriously consider what this chapter says. Seriously consider the resurrection. Seriously consider its implications. And seriously consider turning to this crucified and resurrected Savior in faith. If you want to talk more about that after you hear these things, you can turn to anyone who's a member of this church and just say, hey, I want to talk more about that. Can you pray with me? Or you can come see me at the end. But I want to look at a few things that this chapter communicates that all funnels into confidence. You see, the main idea of this whole chapter is that the foundation of Christian confidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the thrust of this chapter. It's interesting that actually Paul begins this whole letter talking about the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, that the power of the cross is uh, 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 saving us. But then he ends with the resurrection of Jesus. That, if you will, the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, are like bookends to this letter. It is the lens through which we should read and understand the whole letter. The foundation of Christian confidence is not your confidence in yourself. The foundation of Christian confidence is not believing in yourself. The foundation of Christian confidence is not even trying to understand who you are in Christ. The foundation of Christian confidence is the resurrection, the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, let's just think about what this chapter says about the resurrection. First, that the resurrection is crucial. Jesus' resurrection is crucial to the whole message of Christianity. Notice how the chapter begins. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says in verse 2 that this, this is the gospel by which you are being saved. The message of Christianity is not one of moral reformation. It is not one in which we turn over a new leaf. It is not one in which we try to do better at the good habits than we do at our bad habits. The message of Christianity is not that we will make ourselves better and hope to make ourselves better enough so that we make it to heaven. You know, there's that Alan Jackson song, right, where if you don't know country music, I mean, there's a lot of interesting theology in country music. But there's this song, Where I Come From, is cornbread and chicken. 
Where I come from, a lot of back porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven where I come from. That's not the message of Christianity. I mean, chicken might be, but not, <laughs> not working hard to get to heaven. The message of Christianity is not about moral reformation. It's about salvation. It's about the fact that humanity is in trouble, deep, unimaginable trouble, so deep that we cannot get out of it ourselves. And yet God is so gracious that He sent a Savior to rescue us out of that trouble. That's the gospel that Paul's referring to, and he lays out the pieces of this gospel in verses 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So these three parts, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was not simply a good man who was martyred for what He believed in. He did not die to inspire us toward better living, to stand up for what we believe in, though His courage does strengthen believers. Jesus died, Paul says, for our sins. Peter says the same in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul speaks of Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood. Now, that's a word we do not use often, propitiation. So let me explain. The Bible teaches that we are sinners, that we break God's law, that we are disobedient, and that, that disobedience makes us liable to God's wrath, eternal judgment in hell. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has made provision for that. You see, Jesus never sinned. He was morally perfect, and He took our place in taking God's judgment. He paid the penalty for our sin. That is propitiation, that all of God's wrath against our sin was satisfied by Jesus' death. Think of it this way. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath completely dry so that there's not a drop left for those who believe in Him. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry. Can you imagine that? So that there's none left if you believe in Jesus. None. Jesus died for our sins. And then he says Jesus was buried. Now, uh, that is just, I mean, why include that, right? If, if you hear about someone, if you read, read the obituaries today, you will assume that most, maybe half, most of those people are going to be buried in some way. You don't have to be told that they are going to be buried. Why would Paul do that? Paul does that because burial is the confirmation that Jesus really died. Because you see, there are religions that teach He didn't really die, that someone else died and they mistook it for Jesus, or, that, or some will say He actually just passed out on the cross. 
But the inclusion of the burial is to say, no, Jesus died. The Roman soldiers who were there, who were experts in death, pronounced Him dead before they removed Him from the cross. The women went to observe the burial. They knew precisely where He was laid. They had wept as He was pulled from the cross. They had watched as He was buried. And in that day, women weren't even allowed to… they weren't even counted as reliable witnesses in a court of law. So the fact that the Gospels counts these women as witnesses actually increases the historical nature of these accounts. Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised on the third day. These same women who knew where Jesus had been buried knew where to go to anoint the body, and they found the tomb empty. And the angelic announcement that we read this morning at the beginning of the service confirmed it. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. And these women are thrilled, and they go and they share the good news of Jesus' resurrection with the disciples. Again, witnesses who in the culture weren't allowed to be witnesses. The resurrection of Jesus is crucial to the gospel. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That and is huge. Without the resurrection, the gospel is incomplete. The gospel is not the gospel. It's not good news. There's actually no power to save without the resurrection. One is not a Christian unless their whole faith is in this message, in this Savior. But if anyone turns from the sin that condemns them to the Savior who died and was raised again for them, he or she will be saved. Will be. Will be. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is the gospel. I mean, Paul has boiled it down as simply as possible. Jesus died, was buried, was raised on the third day. This, marriage, this, this message not only strengthens us, it is the message we have for the world. It is the only thing we have to offer the world. We don't have programs. We don't have policies. We don't have new laws that, that will magically make everything better. The only hope for humanity is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a member of Gray Road, can you explain the gospel to someone? If someone just walked up to you the way the people walked up to Peter after Pentecost and said, um, what am I supposed to do about this? Or like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Would you be able to explain this? Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor, said that uh, he was... He was, he was with some seminary students, and he told them that the first 200 sermons that they preach would be awful. 200. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to be in that class, thinking I'm giving my whole life to this, and the first 200 times I do it, it will be terrible. His point was, was that the more that you do something like that, the more you communicate the Bible, the more that you teach, the better you will get at it. And dear friends, if you, you may fumble your way through every gospel presentation that you make, but stay at it. Keep sharing the gospel. You, God will give you grace to help you. 
Jesus died, was buried, was raised on the third day. His resurrection is crucial. Secondly, His resurrection is credible. Now, just as burial underlines the reality of Jesus' death, Paul goes on to talk about the appearances which confirm Jesus' resurrection. He didn't just disappear from the tomb. He didn't just immediately ascend to heaven. He appeared to His followers. And in appearing to them, Jesus, does not, Jesus is confirming that He's not just a crucified Savior. He's a crucified and risen Savior, a living Lord. So listen to these. Beginning in verse 6, then he appeared to more than five. Oh, sorry, uh, verse 5. And, he, and, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul records these appearances for us, and most of them make sense, don't they? Oh, Cephas, that's Peter. Yeah, that makes sense that Jesus would appear to him. Oh, to the twelve. Got it. All the apostles. Okay. But there are some things in here that are really unique that underline the credibility of Jesus' resurrection, the first of which is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time which means that his followers did not hallucinate when they saw him. Hallucination is something you do when you're alone at night and you're on that particular medication that drives your mind nuts, right? And you see spiders going up the wall. But that is not what happened. That's why this testimony is so crucial because Jesus' appearance to more than 500 people eliminates the possibility of hallucination. He appeared to James. Most likely, this is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James was a skeptic during all of Jesus' life and ministry. That doesn't make sense. Apparently, it's not just that people were sitting around, I really want him to be alive. I really want him to be alive. I really want him to be alive. Ooh, that's him, that's him, that's him. Jesus appeared to a skeptic. And if that wasn't enough, Paul says, then he appeared as to one untimely born to me. And he goes on to call himself the least of all the apostles. And, and he says why. He says that he started out his religious career as one who hated the church, who hated the message of Jesus, who imprisoned Christians, who actually participated in their execution as in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 as, as he gives his approval there. Of all the people that the risen Christ would appear to, Paul is the least likely. Do you know what that means? I mean, at the moment that Jesus appears to him, he is on his way to kill and imprison those who follow Jesus. Do you know what that means? Just, just think, if you were making up the story, this is not what you would do. You would have Jesus come and zap this guy, wouldn't you? Just blow him off the face of the earth. Teach him a lesson. But what actually happened? Jesus shows up to one who is ready to persecute the church, 
who's ready to imprison believers, who's ready to see them die slow, agonizing, torturous deaths and says, I want you. That makes the testimony of Paul seeing the resurrected Christ all the more credible. 500 witnesses, a skeptic, a persecutor, all adding up to more credibility. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you have questions about the Christian faith, start with the resurrection of Jesus. That is where the heart of the faith is. I mean, you go to the doctor, right? They check your blood pressure. They check your pulse. They want to make sure your heart is working right because if your heart is not working right, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter that your, you know, your, your finger is cut so much as your heart's not working right. You want to get to the heart of the faith, get to the resurrection. Read this little book. It's like 90 small pages. It is worth the investment of your time. Take seriously the claims of Jesus, but investigate the resurrection. Mark yes on that little Case for Christ card and come this Wednesday. There's going to be child care. We would love to talk with you more about it. And we'll see, and the rest of the chapter actually shows us why this is so worth time invested. Because Jesus' resurrection isn't just crucial to the message and credible. Jesus' resurrection gives confidence. That's what the rest of the chapter tells us. Confidence in a few areas. First of all, confidence in our faith. Listen to beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, in Corinth, people had started to buy into philosophies that rejected the whole idea of resurrection. And so Paul wants to face this head on and say, you, you can't actually believe what you say you believe about Jesus and deny resurrection as a reality. And so in verses 13 and 16, he says, look, if, if the dead aren't raised in general, then not even Jesus has been raised. And that has serious implications. I'll just list them again for you. Preaching is useless. Faith in Jesus is useless. The apostles are liars, and you shouldn't trust a one of them, including their writings, which we call the New Testament. And the biggest implication, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus hasn't been raised, and if Jesus hasn't been raised, you're still liable for your sin. There's no hope in the face of death, 
And Christians, those, who, those people who are proclaiming Jesus are the most pitiful creatures on God's green earth. That's what's true if Jesus hasn't been raised. We're just wasting a whole bunch of time. We should be chasing eggs around a yard and smelling ham waft into our nose and doing other things. But then there's this huge conjunction in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Meaning that everything that would have been true if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead is actually true. That preaching and faith in Jesus carry eternal weight. That we can trust the apostles in the New Testament. That forgiveness of sin is real. That there actually is life beyond this world. That Christians are not those who live pitiful existence of hopelessness, but they live glorious lives of hope. That the Christian religion is not part of what Karl Marx called the opium of the masses that is meant to create the illusion of comfort without actually giving comfort. That the Christian religion, that the gospel itself is the healing medicine, not the opium, the healing medicine for mankind. That as that old song, I think Andre Crouch sang it, uh, Jesus is the answer for the world today. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then that's the case. It means, dear friend, if, if you're one who just said, I need to grow in sharing the gospel and I just need to keep at it. All right, I fumble my way through it. I need to keep at it. Just know that as you share the gospel, as you take the gospel to the end of your streets, as we take it to the ends of the earth, we are not wasting our time. We are not blowing smoke. We are not running in vain. We are not on a religious treadmill. We're going somewhere. Sharing the gospel has eternal significance. No matter, what, no matter how your friend responds to you, no matter how that family member responds to you, no matter how that coworker responds to you, sharing the gospel is not a vain activity. Why? Not because you're great, but because Jesus is raised from the dead. That's why. The resurrection gives confidence in our faith. Secondly, the resurrection gives confidence in the future. Look at verse 23. Or verse 22, sorry. For, for in, as in Adam all die, meaning all in sin, all who followed Adam's lead, that means all humanity who are in sin, die eternally, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All who are in Christ shall be made alive. And so then... In verse 23, Paul says, each in his order, Christ the firstfruits. That's what Paul called Jesus in verse 20 as well, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, which means there's more to come. Firstfruits means there's more to come. That's what that means. It's just the first. Now, we'll talk about our resurrection in just a moment, but Paul fast-forwards to the future, and then he comes back to us. So he goes... And he says in verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when He, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of what the Bible calls the last day. It is the beginning of the end for the curse of sin. It is the beginning of the end for the deception and work of the devil. It is the beginning of the end for evil. It is the beginning of the end for the last enemy which will be defeated, and that is death itself. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the end, and in the end, Christ will reign over all. Verse 27 and 25, everything will be under His feet in subjection to Him. And then, once all of that is accomplished, Jesus hands over the kingdom so that, verse 28, the last phrase, God may be all in all. And if we were to fast forward and just write these, I put these references up, we're not going to read them. But if you were to go to Revelation 19 and you were to go to Revelation 20 and you were to go to Revelation 21, what you will see is that Christ fully defeats all of the enemies of God. Satan and death and Hades are all cast into what is called the lake of fire and there remains forever. And in Revelation 21, what you see is there will be no more mourning and no more death and every tear is wiped away because Christ has made all things new. Peace and joy will last forever in the new heavens and new earth in a renovated universe. And we have confidence that that will happen. We know it because the first step on the journey there is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the first fruits, then when He comes, those of us uh, who are in Christ, and then the end comes. That's the, only, that's the only way we know things will be better. It's not that the world will get better and better and better. It's that when Jesus comes, He will make right what has all been wrong. He will reverse the curse. All those who are in Him will live forever with Him in peace and in joy and away from evil and sin and death. And we know that not because we argue loudly, just because we just want it to be true. I just want it so much it becomes true for me. We know it because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection gives confidence in our faith in the future. And then Paul gets personal in the face of death itself. He talks about us, our resurrection. He had mentioned it up there in verse 23. You know, just yesterday was uh, the visitation and funeral service for Frances Blackwell, 97-year-old dear woman, member of Gray Road. Uh, There are things when you go to visitations you learn about people. Frances would buy cards for her children's anniversaries and for their birthdays, and she would paint in them. She would paint additional scenes inside the cards, and she would paint on the envelope on the exterior, and she had painted some materials uh, uh, so, uh, several years ago so that her children could all make quilts, hanging quilts, so they could have her artwork uh, hanging on their wall. 
just a wonderful glory, just, just a wonderful woman who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the midst of that family's grief, in the face of death, the resurrection of Jesus is the only hope. Because the resurrection of Jesus signals our resurrection. So verse 35, Paul transitions, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And so he's going to go into this, and what I want to do is summarize. He, he really starts uh, some forward motion uh, in verse 40, and he essentially talks about the resurrection as a great exchange. Our resurrection as a great exchange. That we exchange uh, earthly bodies for heavenly bodies, in verse 40. We exchange the perishable for the imperishable, verse 42. An existence which dishonors the Lord through sin for one of glory, perfectly glorifying God, in verse 43. One that is weak for one that is powerful, never to be weakened. You know your own weakness, don't you? With each passing year, don't you know your own weakness? Have you started grunting when you stand up? Have you stopped playing on the floor with children or grandchildren for fear you might never get off? You know your own weakness, don't you? If you're 20-something, just wait, all right? Just wait. It will come. It will come slowly. It will creep up on you, and it will get you. But at the end, we will trade the body that is weak for power. Change the natural for the supernatural. Not, not spiritual, I mean, not to mean non-physical. Jesus' resurrection body was a physical body, but it was glorified. It was a spiritual body. The exchange of the image of the man of dust, verse 49, which is Adam, for the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. I mean, you're trading up. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that what 1 John 3, 2 says, we shall be made like Him when we see Him face to face. And then Paul finishes. Let's just read from verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, most people can't imagine asking a question like that with confidence. Standing up and saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Because you know what? In the funeral home and at the graveside, all they feel is loss. Because as we think forward to our own death, so many people think it is the loss of life, right? That death comes to claim its victims. 
Not many people can imagine standing up and saying, Oh, death, where is your sting? Because they have felt the sting of loss, and that's all they know. And all they see in the future is the sting that will come to them at death. But Jesus says this to a woman who is grieving the loss of her brother. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And the only way that is guaranteed, the only way that you and I can know that though we die, yet shall we live, is that though Jesus died, yet He lives. That's the only way to know. And even as Jesus says, those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The opposite is true, dear friend. The one who does not believe in him, though they live now, yet surely they shall die. Not once but twice. Not just a physical death, but an eternal death, an eternal conscious torment in hell. Whoever lives and does not believe Him shall never live. But the resurrection of Jesus gives us confidence in our faith, confidence in the future, confidence in the face of death. The foundation of all Christian confidence is the resurrection of Jesus. Dear friend, as you think about the end of your life, as you think about the day in which you will stand, on which you will stand before God, and know Him as the judge of your life. As you think about the reality that the Bible says that God actually doesn't just judge our actions. He, can judge, he judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He sees right past the exterior that we have. He sees right past any good works or the charade of a good life or whatever we do in public. He sees right past that and He doesn't just see what we do. In private, he actually sees why we do it. And as you think about that day, when not just every action that you have ever taken will be known and fully displayed and judged, but every motive, every intention, every thought, every unspoken word will come before the holy judge are you instilled with confidence or uncertainty? You know, a lot of people, if they were asked, well, you know, when you die, do you believe you'll go to heaven? Do you know what, you know what most people tell me when I ask them that question? I hope so. I wonder if that's how you would answer. If I asked you that, if we were having coffee and I asked you that question, I'd say, well, 
Well, what do you think? When you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? I mean, would you say, well, I hope so. Oh, dear friend, the Bible teaches us that we can know that we have eternal life, but that the only way to have this confidence is through faith in Jesus. That, dear friend, you must repent of your sin. You must turn away from it. You must forsake it. Friend, it is killing you. Leave it behind and turn to Jesus who died for your sins, who was buried, who was raised on the third day. Trust in the risen Christ to save you. And the Bible says that you will have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame. Will you turn to Him in faith? Will you pray to Him? Confess your sin to Him. Place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about to just have a moment in which we reflect on these things, the teaching of the Bible. If that is you, I would encourage you, pray to the Lord in your own words. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will save you. Profess your faith through baptism. Follow Jesus. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and no one who calls on the name of the Lord will ever be put to shame ultimately. Why would you do anything else? Let's take just a moment and bow our heads and reflect on the teaching of uh, of 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection, the death and resurrection for us. And then I will pray and then we will close. We come before you thankful for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In ourselves, of ourselves, we are completely incapable of being right with you, of atoning for our own sin. There is no good habit that can erase our sin. There is no church going that can erase our sin. But thank you that you have provided a Savior who died for us in accordance with the Scriptures, who was buried, who was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, appeared to confirm He is alive, ascended to heaven, and will come again. I pray for all these folks that are gathered here. I pray for the Christian that you will strengthen and encourage them that believing in Jesus is not a waste of time. It is not a fool's errand. And neither is our evangelism. And for those who do not know the Lord Jesus or maybe who just now in the quietness of this moment have prayed and confessed their sin and trusted in Christ, for those who have done that, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them to walk faithfully, to follow Jesus, to profess their faith in baptism, to grow in the church, to follow you the rest of the, the days of their lives. And for those who remain unconvinced, I pray by your grace that you will stimulate them to investigate more, to keep hearing the gospel 
to come to the class we offer, whatever it is, Lord. We thank you for this day, for what it means for us, for now, in the face of death, and for all eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.